it's funny. People always be like, don't forget about the little people. It's like, why do they refer themselves as little anyway, you know? Why don't you just get big with me? They can see it in my eyes. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of John's Entitled Podcast. I am your host, John. This week's guest is Andrew Michael Wells of Idola, also a touring guitar player and contributor to Dance Gavin Dance. This conversation has been in the works for quite a while, actually. Uh, Andrew, as you will hear, I had been shopped Idola uh, probably, shit, two years ago at this point, maybe even three. And that was actually how I ended up finding out about the band, was through getting submitted uh, their tour. And kind of fell in love with the song uh, Contra off of their Degenitera record. And been following the band ever since. Uh, Andrew being the band's tour manager, him and I kind of contacted through, or connected I should say, through Facebook. And sort of kept in contact until the band had to call off the rest of the tour due to van issues. And somehow decided to go from the East Coast all the way to Utah in a van that was not really working. So I can only imagine how shitty that was and uh, just kind of speaks to the road dog nature of the band. It's been interesting to see Andrew end up getting some of this notoriety he has from being in Dance Gavin Dance. Dance Gavin Dance. <clears throat> Most recently they just got done doing Warp Tour. Uh, as of a few weeks ago at this point. It wasn't until I got home from the Quesarat to a show that we went to go to, my wife and I, out in Rhode Island, that we realized, or that I realized, that while I was out in Connecticut seeing Warp Tour, that I could have actually connected with Andrew and, and met up with him while he was on the tour, until after the tour was done and I was on my way back to Rhode Island. So there's been a few opportunities for me to, to kind of get this conversation done. It's been agreed upon to have done but it just took probably about a year at this point in that time andrew's actually done a couple of other podcasts uh most notably uh the home before dark podcast which i shared uh when the tim and kevin posted the episode uh since then tim from the home before dark podcast and i've uh kind of intermittently talked uh there's some conversation about maybe me going on over there and, and chatting about various things uh, but it's a fun podcast. They just actually put out a new episode. If you go to the Home Before Dark podcast, they actually just put out a new episode this week with Johnny from uh, Bill Murray and X Attack Attack. Uh, it's been kind of intermittent as far as uh, some of the episodes they put out, but they've gotten really interesting <clears throat> episodes. Uh, they had Sean Price from Era, uh, where they basically talk a little bit about the band and then a lot about like video games and, and stuff like that. Um, but they also did an episode with uh, Andrew that I really enjoyed and kind of another catalyst for me being like, oh man, like I've been trying to get Andrew on, on my podcast for a little bit and uh, he's been popping up on all these other ones. But be that as it may, it gave me good uh, groundwork to see how Andrew is, like what you know everyone kind of talked about because I like to try to not bring up things that everyone has beaten to death uh, when they get to interview somebody, the same person. Interestingly enough, since this this conversation happened, uh, it has been discovered, announced, whatever you want to say, that Dave Mustaine of Megadeth actually has Lyme disease. And that was something that Andrew and I ended up talking about in this because I kind of noticed through some of his stuff on Facebook that he had been going through something. And I couldn't really remember if he, you know, kind of openly had talked about it anywhere or not. 
And it's something, you know, that's obviously a big part of his life now and was a part of uh, a lot of struggles uh, in the last year with the extra touring from Dance Gavin Dance and so forth. So it was interesting to, to talk about some of that stuff uh, that I haven't really heard him talk about so far. We also get into the pros and cons, I guess, of being in, in two different bands, one of which is, is your thing that you started and basically becoming like hopping into something that's already got a name behind it and, and already has its built in fan base. Uh, you know, cause I've always wondered, you know, some people might say that that's taken an easy way out. Some people might say it, it takes away from the other thing that you're trying to build. And I kind of wanted to get an idea of where his head was at with that. And as a whole, it was, it was just a really good conversation. And I think it was a very honest conversation. There's definitely some things that I ask that I don't think uh, I've ever <laughs> heard anyone bring up uh, within the context of some of the things that Andrew brings up as far as some of the literature, some of the, the writings and readings that he is knowledgeable on and some of the content that those things are about, as you'll hear in this conversation. And so I kind of wanted to challenge him a little bit to talk a little bit more in depth about some of these things that I picked up on and I don't necessarily know that anyone else did or, or cared to elaborate on, but uh, sometimes it's it's kind of little weird to, to ask someone some some personal questions like I, I kind of get into with him on this, but it does make me feel good that uh, he was very open and honest with everything I asked and didn't want anything taken out and was willing to kind of talk about all these things. And for that, this, this was definitely a chat that I had been looking forward to for a very long time and did not disappoint. And it was a great chat. So I, I really want to thank uh, Andrew again for taking the time out of his very busy life uh, to chat with me for about an hour and a half. And I, there's really not a whole lot cut out of this because I think it's just a solid conversation all the way through. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Andrew Michael Wells. Uh, let's start with the cliche who you are and how you got into music sweet uh, I'm Andrew Michael Wells I'm from Provo Utah I got into music at a pretty young age I mean there there are videos of me as like a little kid um, playing little toy guitars and singing <laughs> at the top of my lungs and I, I feel like I've always kind of been a character even when I was younger I like to entertain people um, what really got me into music kind of came in different stages of uh, when I was younger. Um, like the the very first record I remember buying with my own money was uh, Paranoid by Black Sabbath. And I remember <laughs> okay. it just scaring the shit out of me. From the cover that, or just the music or all of it? Yeah, all of it. I remember my dad, he would drive around in his old pickup truck and – my, my parents divorced at a younger age. He would pick me up every other weekend, and every time we'd drive home, uh, he'd be blasting like War Pigs uh, or Iron Man, and and just kind of the kind of the classics. He was a big Iron Maiden fan too, and I remember buying 
Black Sabbath's Paranoid and going to Fairies Wear Boots, Jack the Ripper, the closing track on that record, and it just like blowing my mind. And so that kind of introduced me to he- the heavier side of music. And that got more, even more solidified over time uh, with with some different heavy bands. And then I kind of got into that teenage phase of getting into punk music and kind of pop punk music like Blink-182. Right. Uh, bands like Good Charlotte even and uh, Green Day. I remember seeing a Good Charlotte concert and just being fucking pumped and just and just <laughs> saying to myself at like 11 or 12, like, this is what I want to do. These guys are fucking great. Uh and looking back, I'm like, oh, that's a weird inspiration to start, but <laughs> whatever. And so I remember seeing that show and, and uh, asking my dad for a guitar for Christmas. Because originally, when I started playing music in general, was on the flute. It was when we... Uh, it Recorders was we, and all that kind yep, of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Or, and then like the actual flute, um, the woodwind instruments. I got involved with that in about fifth or sixth grade, and I... I I kept with that for a little while and, and got, I eventually in high school went to brass instruments and uh, guitar and drum set and bass and um, jazz band. I sang in choirs, uh, like three different choirs in my high school and just kind of got enveloped in music. But outside of school, I was trying to start my own bands. I grew up with my brother, Brandon, who's, who's now in Idola. And he picked up the guitar about a year or two after I did at the age of 13 is when I, my dad bought me my first guitar. It was this little shitty silver tone. <laughs> like a, he spent like a buck seventy five on the guitar and an Damn. amp and yep. uh, looked I like a Fender I, knockoff. Yeah, I think I had like the I don't I it the the Digitech death metal pedal, <laughs> just like the classic. It's good to know uh, that that the classic uh, starter kits are all all the all the tools are all the same. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's all, yep, exactly. So my dad, I mean, my dad's been a cop for like 25 years. He, he was, he kind of, he got remarried and grew out of metal music and heavy music. He, he used to have a big mullet and a big beard. He shaved all that off, started listening to smooth jazz. And, um, but he bought me that guitar and I, I started picking it up and basically he got me a couple of lessons, but I, I quit that pretty quickly and just self-taught myself from there. And, uh, the two concerts I remember kind of solidifying why I wanted to do music in its entirety, like why I wanted to pursue it so actively. I saw two shows uh, same year when I was 16. I saw one show was a band called Isis. Mm-hmm. And that show was fucking incredible. One of the best shows I've ever I have ever seen. They played a bunch of songs off Panopticon and um, just killer, killer show. They, they were touring with a band called Torch. Yep, I just saw them actually. We oh, go. really? Who are yeah. they on tour? Uh, they are on tour with uh, Russian Circles and Mastodon. Oh fuck me, dude! I doubt that that's coming to Utah, but that sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, I once again left before Mastodon started. I just wanted to go see Russian Circles and uh, or no, I'm sorry, Torch. Actually, I'm sorry, wrong wrong show. I just saw these two shows, these two tours back to back. That was actually right. Russian Circles, uh, Eagles of Death Metal, Mastodon, and the tour a week before that was a uh, Code Orange Torch. Uh, Gojira. Oh man, I love Gojira too. Those yeah. are great lineups. Yeah, yeah. I remember that ISIS show was like ISIS Torch, a band called Zozobra, um, and a band called Hesu. They're kind of kind of more underground. Is that how you say it? I thought it was Jesu. J e s u. I guess yeah, it could be Jesu. I, I don't know. They were yeah, it was uh, it was very foreign at the time. I, I don't remember liking that <laughs> band too much. Um, but yeah, ISIS ISIS blew my mind, and then. 
uh, I saw Circa Survive for the first time. Uh, it was on their On Letting Go tour. And okay. I was, yeah, I think it was 15 or 16 years old. It was like right as Circa was starting to come up. It was probably at a, I, it was a place called the Avalon Theater for like three or 400 people. I just and saw just, Circa play a 400 cap room uh, about two months ago. Like they were finished what, with that uh, tour they were doing with AFI. And then on their like, on their way home, they're like to one of the bigger indie promoters around here. They're like, find us a small room. And so they played to like 400 people. So I went and saw Eated on that Taking Back Sunday tour and then left during Taking Back Sunday and then jetted across the street to go see Circa play a 400 cap room with no barricade God. or nothing. Damn. Lucky man. Yeah, I would kill to see Circa in a in a 400 cap room again. I remember... I, I remember think Anthony it, likes it. <laughs> no, I, I doubt it. I, when, last time in Salt Lake, um, he stage dove into the audience and somebody punched him in the eye. Uh, gave him a full-on black eye and he, he was just like, yeah, I'm getting too old for this bullshit. Like, I can't be fucking jumping in these people getting black eyes all the time. Yeah. I'm like, they're yeah, there was a bunch of stage stage diving people, and he didn't seem like he enjoyed having people on his stage. <laughs> but he yeah, was super nice. Yeah. He signed the poster that I got uh, last minute before he went on the bus. But uh, Dude, it's, yeah, it still trips me out that there are people smaller than me. I mean, I'm only five six, five seven, and so when people walk up to me, I'm like, "Holy shit, you're shorter than I am." I'm still weird. I I love that man. He's a he's a sweetheart, dude. Um, it was always my dream as a kid to like meet him, and now that I now I've met him multiple times and I've talked with him. He's just, it, he's super genuine. He's like one of the few people I can say that I, it, my heroes that I've met that is just a great dude. Uh, through so and through. confirmed he will be on the next Idola record. Oh, fuck. I, would kill <laughs> for that. I mean, that'd probably yeah. be a bunch of your recording budget, but <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll hit up will see if we can get the budget for it. <laughs> um, something actually, in, in doing the research I've done on, on the different podcasts you've done and some of the written interviews I've seen you do over the last year or two, uh, I'm kind of interested to find out what your schooling background is like. Um, because obviously anyone who listens to Idola, and it seems like any of the interviews that you've done, people are very astute to the lyrics and the, the themes and concepts going on within, excuse me, uh, within the record. And... You know, no one surprisingly has asked what your background was in schooling to see if any of, of your upbringing or your schooling, because I feel like maybe you went to school for like psychology or theology or something like that. And kind of wanted to ask you if, if that's actually the case or if I just kind of am inquisitive and reading too much into what uh, I think is some of your influences. For sure. I definitely appreciate the question. Surprisingly enough, I do not have any schooling after high school. Um all its maximum was high school graduate i graduated really early um i had all my credits like in my junior year and i decided to take a few music classes strictly music for the shorter half of my senior year and then i still i just got kind of got fed up and and bounced but in terms of where i've kind of cultivated a lot of these concepts and where i've gotten a lot of this information from that i use in the themes and the concepts the motifs is not only based on on personal experience with what i would consider as the divine but just a lot of reading uh, I, I my upbringing was based in utah where in the most mormon part of utah so the that most was, mormon I was yeah, say, that was mormon another question that i was going to span off on was just how much of where you live also affects 
if it wasn't the schooling or going to for that, how much of where you live is is also what shapes your lyrical content. Yeah, I would say I would say a great deal. I think that the environmental factors for sure impacted not only from my past but but currently. It's it's an interesting environment to be in, um, especially to grow up in a place like this where n- my parents divorced at a young age. They both got remarried. They're both very lofty on their views about spirituality and religion. They're pretty much like I would I would consider them both agnostic, borderline atheist in. You know, and my step parents too are kind of in the same realm. They're just more so agnostic than anything else. But when you're in the most LDS state in the most LDS city within that state, it it does you know as far as the county goes in the city, there is a certain level that you're expected to behave at, just socially. Right. I, I think when you when you start growing your hair out or you get tattoos or you have a beard or you know you want more than three point two percent beer. Or <laughs> I forgot any, about that. Like anything, anything you drink. It used to be even a, uh, when I was growing up, they the LDS church they didn't allow you to drink uh, like caffeinated drinks at all. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of like my mother in law, she loves Diet Coke. <laughs> just Coke, Diet Coke, loves it. Um, but her the religion just wouldn't allow her to do it until recently, like two or three years ago, they changed it. And now she's you know rocking the the full seven uh, eleven cups and and uh, and it's it, I agree with that I think that you should be able to do to, to drink what you want as long as you're not harming anybody else and you're okay with the harm to yourself I mean soda's bad it's yeah. like I don't think anybody's contesting that but <laughs> it's you know for a religious doctrine to say you know or to heavily imply it's the word of word of wisdom to not do that I, I think is you know it's it comes with the culture but that again, it just expresses the fact that when you're growing up in that environment, you're expected to behave and function kind of at a certain level that everybody else is on, except for a very small portion. And so, what tends to happen is it breeds this counterculture in that same environment. You get a lot of people that they want to do the opposite. They go, "Oh well, you know, fuck you. I don't, I don't want to follow this. I want to do the opposite. I want to do. I want to start doing drugs. I want to start having sex. I want to." Um, do anything to rebel and defy. And since the culture is so heavily regulated and so heavily um, observed by the, the society, it de- it definitely causes a lot of that counterculture co- cultural argument. So for me, when I grew up in that, my parents didn't, again, they weren't religiously affiliated. So I kind of had to look elsewhere for these things. And because I'd, I'd gone to uh, Mormon churches, my step my stepdad's grandparents, his, my, they were very LDS. They took us to church um, on weekends occasionally. And I, I felt like there was something there, but it really just didn't apply to me, this this specific yeah. branch of Christianity. And so I, I just kind of felt like there was more. When I was younger, I was just basically an atheist. I just kind of thought that God wasn't real. And then I went through a, a really uh, kind of my initial entrance into depression and anxiety when I was younger and I it, kind of everybody at that age you're angsty or that yeah. that teen and uh I got caught up in the in some emo culture where you know <laughs> I was I was cutting and I dyed my hair black and uh I was doing all these things and I, there was definitely an underlying depressive element to what I was going through and I didn't really seek out help and I so there was a moment where uh 
we'll just say it was it was basically kind of a, a suicidal a very suicidal moment or very close to suicide um in terms of an attempt and that was when i was about 16 and i didn't go through with it obviously so i wanted to find something else that really helped me kind of address that underlying problem right. and so I, I started turning to spirituality and started looking at faith in different ways than what was being presented to me. Not not the lofty version of faith that my parents had had and not this like very narrow focused um, microscopic version of faith that was in the culture around me. So right. I started reading. I started reading. Um, you know, I read the Bible. I read the Quran. I started reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I started reading. Um, the Four Truths, um, the Bhagavad Gita, just all these different books. Uh, and then I started reading more modern interpretations of the books, too, like uh, Be Here Now by Ram Das, mm -hmm. Gris Mill also by Ram Das, Doors of Perception, Perennial Philosophy, these more modern interpretations of these older texts and how they can, can be applied. And so that's kind of shaped my my general worldview, which is constantly changing, it's constantly adaptable based on experience. And uh, although I, I wouldn't say I have like technical schooling in those areas, I would say that I'm, I'm relatively well read. I try, I pride myself in trying to learn as much as possible in any context. So. Has there been anything in your reading of all these different religions and subsets and all that that you have found to be universally the same? And how shocking that, yeah, I was insane how shocking it yeah. may be considering how far removed everything was. Yes, absolutely. I think that a greater majority, I wouldn't say all, I would say that there are definitely some fundamental differences in belief structures between like Judeo-Christian religions and uh, a lot of Eastern religions or even some earlier monotheistic religions. I think there are some core principles that differ, but I would go to bat and say that a general majority of the problems that are perceived by people in those religions are made up based on the fact that the verbiage is just different. It's just yeah. a it's slightly different verbiage. It's a slightly different interpretation. And a lot of people take that as you're wrong, I'm right. This is this is something we have to disagree on because the terminology is something that we don't necessarily grasp. And yeah. that that oftentimes comes down to language barriers it comes down to just how language is developed in different different places in the world i think that a, a lot of core issues can are there are a lot of parallels to be drawn between a lot of different faiths and creeds and so i, I respect a lot of people for their belief i know a lot of a lot of um counter-culturalists like coming back to utah in particular they try <laughs> to they just try to dismantle anything remotely yeah. christian and be you know and, and just say oh you can't believe in that religion is is inherently evil and it's like no you're 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 just as bad as these people that are so far gone and so far removed from any sense of empathy with other people's faith it's it's just as toxic in my opinion somebody who goes out of their way to say that it's you know the in, that religion or belief in something that's higher than you is inherently bad i just i don't agree with that yeah you know something i I wasn't sure if I was going to ask just because I didn't know how silly of a question it would be, but I don't really, I've never, very much in the way that when I tell people I'm from Delaware and people go, I've never met anyone from Delaware and then ask me questions. I don't yeah. know anyone from Utah. My wife has been there and told me about the flavorings that they put in instead of like shots and stuff like that and kind of explained the whole how you have to order 
like liquor there at a bar, mm. uh, which is interesting to say the least. Um, it's very. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I kind of had wondered. I mean, with you living in Provo, and I'm pretty sure we're. God, I, I'm so terrible about doing this on <laughs> almost every episode of this. I believe we're around the same age. I'm gonna. I just turned 33. I think you're about 27, 28, if I'm not mistaken. I just turned 26 this summer. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty close. Yeah. Um, but what was? Because I don't imagine there being a huge hotbed scene in Utah as far as like a local scene or whatever. I could be wrong, and I probably am. But you're not. You're not wrong. Okay. <laughs> so obviously, with my age, and, and you kind of alluded to. I mean, sort of like the. Like when you were talking about when you were 16 and stuff like that, I couldn't help but think of, you know, My Chemical Romance and the used and the emo scene that came out around then. What was it like living in Utah, especially when the used broke? Because I feel like that kind of like I know what it's like living here in Michigan and Grand Rapids. And I have a, a handful of bands I can think of in a few different genres between, you know, White Stripes or The Verb Pipe or Still Remains or, you know, a lot of these other bands in, in different subgenres. What's it like for you to have a band that's probably the only band I can think of, really, that came out of where you are and especially amongst the the kind of social and religious landscape that you live in and kind of seeing like what they did and have done it's it's humbling it's really interesting because i was re i was pretty young when they broke okay. uh, i remember listening to the used and being like wait these guys are from orem utah are you fucking kidding me this record sounds amazing and but it was again. I didn't get into them till probably two or three years after they broke because I was still pretty young at the time. I think I was only twelve or thirteen when they actually broke, and I yeah. I hadn't quite made it into the emo scene yet. <laughs> right. um, but my my drummer, he's a couple years older than me. He was a freshman when I can't remember who their youngest member was. I think it was Brandon Steinekert. Yeah. Uh, he graduated high school right as Matt was coming into high school. Okay. And that was when they that's that was when the use broke and they they hit the ground running and um, they had that 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 first record the maybe memories or the self titled however you look at it and then uh, in love and death that that kind of really just kept them going and it was really cool for me to look at that and go oh yeah it can be done for sure you can break out of this scene even though there really isn't one but for the rest of the scene they don't give a shit nobody around here <laughs> talks about the use nobody. That's crazy. And it's it's so shitty. It just goes to show you that like uh, in an environment like this, it's so polarizing in Utah. There because it, it fluctuates. Sometimes there's like a local scene. Sometimes there's not. There hasn't been a real uh, local rock scene in a while, and it's because the bands. It's like crabs in a barrel, and oh, we experience okay. the very first. I mean, it's that to the teeth. It's we experienced this when we first got signed to Blue Swan Records, which, like, universally isn't that big of a fucking deal. Like, it's it's great. I love Blue Swan Records. I love Will. He's one of my best homies. He's he's helped put Idola in a in an international spotlight that I I don't think we could have done on our own. Right. And super grateful for that because we've gotten the opportunity co to connect with thousands and thousands of people all over the world and share what we what we feel and and what we what we write, but. It's it's like it's not like getting signed to fucking Capital or Atlantic or one of these these record labels. It wasn't like the used. It wasn't like it popped off. It was like Idola got signed and we've spent the last four years 
on the road grinding and making records to like get out there and and we're we're just as much a working class band as any other national and international touring act we're we're on the grind just like everybody else and that's how it should be more bands should be breaking out of this scene here more bands should be driven and ambitious to go and do those things and accomplish them but in utah it's really difficult because you have these crabs in a barrel anytime anybody gets any sort of notoriety or publicity they, yeah they just grab them and pull them back down they try to just start a bunch of shit start a bunch of rumors um and just and just pull them down they just try to pull them down to to a lower level and what's that what that's caused is such a level of toxicity in the the counterculture and the cultural rock scene that no one wants to go out to shows no one wants to put on shows no one wants to build a local community of bands because next thing you know it one band's getting an, a, a radio interview and then the other band's like no we're blacklisting them from any shows we play because they're getting they're getting out there it's like no that you guys should be helping each other yeah. we should be elevating each other musically and professionally so that we can build a scene that people want people think is cool like you know you look at places like i mean even memphis right you have like your cliche Nashville scene, but Memphis yeah. has a super dope scene that that is is really cool. That bands just help each other out. Uh, Louisville, our, our friends Artifacts Pareo from there, like they've cultivated this really cool scene where they can put a bunch of locals on a bill, sell out a four hundred cap room, no problem, because they've cultivated that. Yeah. For us, we've barely gotten to the point where. We can sell out, you know, a, a two or three hundred cap room here by ourselves with almost no support. But that's taken years, like almost yeah. six years, um, to do in this scene because everybody just tries to to cut each other's throats and they try to they try to undermine each other all the time. So, in light of that, I mean, let's kind of talk about Idola's formative years. Like, in light of all that, what made you want to start a band? What did the beginning? look like for you guys as far as playing out i mean if there's not really much of a scene is it just a lot of the what i kind of call more of the the internet age of bands like where people just are like you know everyone has enough of you know a laptop that has some kind of recording software one person in the band dedicated usually to learning how to do everything buying some equipment and then basically making a home quote-unquote studio and then just basically writing and recording throwing it up maybe making some cds you play a couple live shows whatever was that kind of the route you guys had to take due to the fact that there isn't a scene or were you kind of very much like in spite of the like in spite of the fact that there isn't a scene we're gonna push even harder to to kind of not only be you know the the thriving band in our scene but kind of like okay well then we're gonna go out further because there's nothing really to support us here so like in a way i almost feel like it might be freeing because you're like i don't have to prove myself here i can actually just kind of hit the road and do the thing i want to do without the bullshit first part Totally. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a it was a little bit of both, honestly. I feel like there was a part of us that really wanted to carve our own path here and and really wanted to build something special in the in the Provo community. And we tried. We tried for the first two years of our existence, you know, year and a half, two years, we really tried to grind locally and set up really cool shows and, and work with various venues. We had a venue here called Muse Music and Valor and uh, even this like high school, these high school kids where they would take an audio class and they had a room that their teachers had basically bought from the school 
that they would turn into a live venue. And so they would practice recording and engineering, uh, live audio and sound. So cool. We I'd never had that in high school. So I was I like, fuck never it. heard of like, that either. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. So we we wanted to be a part of that. And it it was decent for a while. And then pr- the Provo scene kind of got, again, it was polarized. It was uh, the indie folk Americana Mormon bands were like doing really well locally. And the rock bands just weren't, they weren't popping off. Like people just didn't like to go to those shows as much if they weren't cultivated with a lot of bands on the bill or they weren't, they weren't done in the right way. And so the rock bands kind of got at each other's throats and so we started looking for opportunities elsewhere. We said, okay, well, we want to, just like you said, we want to start getting out there, expanding our reach. And with the internet, we can do that. We have the ability to record something locally for cheap. Um, that's basically DIY, put it out on and get everything done in house and get out there and try to tour. And that's what we did. We, we toured regionally. We did a, a few DIY tours that we completely booked ourselves and then we opened for Stolas in Salt Lake, and that's where we gave them our first record, The Great Glass Elephant. They they took it to Will, and Will and I linked up, and he basically we had just put it out, like literally a month, <laughs> a month prior. And Will messaged me, and he's like, "When are you doing a new one?" <laughs> like, I don't know, man. I've got like six songs written or something. Like, I can demo some stuff out. And he's like, "Okay, I'm interested. Let's let's talk." And over the course of the next like six months or so, we finished writing and pre-proing out Degeneratera, and we sent him all of those demos, and he was like, okay, cool, we're in business, let's book some studio time, let's get you on the label. And at that point was kind of the turning point for us where, like even then, we, we were so small even back then when we announced the signing. I mean, we were we were so stoked to get like 50 likes on Facebook or like... Uh, <laughs> You know, super stoked to 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 get anything, any type of recognition outside of the local scene, and that kind of put us more on a national platform where people started looking at us and and looking at our band, and that's when we got picked up by Artery for touring. Um, we got to we got the opportunity to get out and tour more, both before Degenerate came out, and then as soon as it came out, we hit the ground running with tours, and um, again that that just kind of separated us from the local scene in, in ways we didn't we didn't really want or predict we just we wanted to pursue our careers and and tour that was our main goal we wanted to get out there we wanted to meet people we wanted to experience these things with with fans in a live setting we wanted to i mean music for us is very cathartic it's very it's a very meditative process for us so to go out there and share that with other people was always our main goal so yeah we got the opportunity to do that but again it kind of you, it gives you less focus. I mean, the the show we played here in Salt Lake a couple weeks ago is the first local show, hometown show we've played in months, like six or eight months. We just, you just, you stop focusing on that local grind as much, and you, your band kind of evolves into a, a national, international touring act. And um, yeah, it, it definitely comes, kind of comes with the territory. I feel like for a lot of bands, it's interesting because that's actually how I, how I found you guys was. Uh, through you working with Artery, I had gotten the tour offer for you guys in Kesara. And it was one of those, like, somehow I I keep on random occasions get on some random person's radar, and then I just get basically every tour offer that this person gets. 
And yep. a lot of times, it's like, here's death metal fest tour going around with like nine death metal bands that need like $1,200 on a Monday and you and can't have any locals. And you're like, no you're way. You're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so in the midst of all that, I had gotten the offer for you guys in case of Raw. And I think at the time, maybe one other. So I kind of wasn't really feeling it. And then I was like, another three band bill. I can only probably have one or two locals if anything and i don't even know if it's going to make enough for the guarantee like well i guess i'll just check out this band because it doesn't say death metal and it doesn't have like crack crack mirror like yeah <laughs> logo or anything like that i was like all right so i che- ended up checking it out and they had sent uh i, I want to say when i had been shopped the tour i think uh degenitera had just come out uh-huh. because uh, at that point um contra i think was the yeah. single that they were sh- shopping you guys for and uh yeah it was really interesting like i kind of listened to it and it was kind of like a slow beginning and i was like okay this isn't what i thought it was i don't know what i was expecting but with the name i don't know and then it just kind of you know it's the song i ended up showing everybody when i was like really stoked to book the show because so i was like i think this is the best song like really like i mean the whole album is incredible but i was like this is kind of like shows a little bit of everything that happens within this this band within you know four or five minutes and then it was crazy to realize that Kesara was basically the old uh, sideshow, and mm-hmm. that I had been in contact with their old drummer like a year before when they went to come up to record the album that they were on when you guys were touring together. Yeah. So it was very weird that it's like, had it not been for me checking that out, I wouldn't have remembered that they were that band, and then kind mm-hmm. of subsequently been friends with those dudes. Like we just went and saw, uh, if you can see behind me, their last show in Rhode Island. Oh yeah, yeah uh, I know. Yeah, I, I love those guys. It's uh, it was a shame that they that they put it down. Yeah, well maybe it'll come back in five years. That seems to be the trend. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, they'll be selling out the hella rooms. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it was. It's interesting to kind of have figured because I didn't. When I mean, I listened to a, a band of your caliber that doesn't, in a way, with how well the album was mixed and produced and just everything about it that doesn't sound like a band that's only a couple years old to me i mean there are those exceptions where people have been in other bands and just the collaborative efforts that they have all put in end up making the sum of the parts better than you know what you would expect from such a young band but Mm -hmm. i definitely was not expecting that to be the case and kind of like something i had said with uh jm from the body rampant a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. during our chat was i was like you know you can tell like a band that spends their money the right way like you can put out a shit sounding cd mm-hmm. and you know it might garner people to buy it but it's like you know if it sounds really good then people are going to be excited about hearing the songs and keep coming back to them or finding little things about it yep. and it's like you know kind of just the cliche if you give a shit then people will give a shit um and i was just so blown away by how well that record sounded and I'm not going to go too much into the actual record because you've been on record. That's really redundant. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about that record uh, specifically. So, I mean, if anyone, I think you even did an album commentary track or something like that, like on a I did. Yeah. Uh, thing yeah. for that. So I'll, I'll link that in the notes if anyone actually really wants to go through in depth uh, with that record. Yeah. Um, something I, I more wanted to know, and I don't think you've hit on it really, but I know you you do a lot of demoing stuff yourself with the guitar playing and, and vocals and stuff yeah. like that. So with the concepts, you know, because you had when Degenitera came out, I think maybe six to eight months after it had been out, you guys broke down what or some a fan asked. I don't remember which it was. You broke down what the album artwork meant, all the different pieces of it and, and how it related 
see the the bigger narrative of what you were trying to accomplish uh, in the narrative of the record with the lyrics and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How how much of that takes shape before? Like, do you kind of have like these ideas that you are like, like I know like when I write for different things, I have words that like I want to start incorporating, like a word that I think is really awesome, and and it's a different word that you don't hear very often, so it'll kind of makes people take notice. And I have just ideas jotted all over the place. Do you have like, here's an album title. Here's here's a cool word or a cool phrase that I've thought of, and here's some imagery that you know I saw when I was when I found this thing, and and I would like to call a song this or blah blah blah. And and it may not be a fully fleshed out idea now, but the 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 piece of paper to remind you to to come back to it is there. Do you do that with? the records and the songs and kind of come up with a concept before does it happen during the songwriting as you're kind of putting everything together and then the last part of this multi-part question uh i'm really interested to to figure out how stressful it is for you guys to put together your track listing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, killer questions i yeah I, i love that um the answer to your the first part would be it is a little bit of both, but that does happen to me all the time. Okay. Uh, I will come up with oftentimes I'll come up with song titles before I even come up with lyrics or content. Like this new record that I just finished writing right now, um, I'm I'm demoing it out this week. Oh, okay, was it like not the new <laughs> the newest one you just finished? No, not yeah, not that one that we just put out like four months. The ago, new new the one, one we're already on. Yeah, I just finished writing LP4 for Idola. Okay. And although it's still, there's, we still got a ton of time to refine. I mean, we literally just put to speak to listen out. I, again, it was like four months ago. Yeah. He, I, I have, I have all these songs like ready in my brain, but when, before they were even constructed, I had come up with the name of the album, uh, all 10, 11 song titles. Uh, I'd, I'd already come up with the concept of the song titles and I already had a visual in my head of what I wanted the color scheme to be, what I want the artwork to look like. And it, it's it's interesting because this record, this LP4 that, I, that I've been working on, it, it's come more naturally for me in that context of things coming to me before they're even manifested. So it gives me even more time to edit mm-hmm. and refine, which is awesome. Uh, in the past, it's been more of a of a kind of process like the great glass elephant was definitely more of a trial and error of finding new things out trying new things out it was the concept was was concrete but it was still kind of loose it was an adaptation of something we'd kind of worked through in the first year or so of being a band and so with we just got better at it over time and things come a little quicker with our track listings it is a nightmare for sure (laughs) Uh, when we it's usually the Great Glass Elephant was pretty was pretty easy because we had no pressure. We were like, okay, <laughs> and we've got this concept. It's cool. This sounds good. We've got these because we grouped it into a color scheme, right? Uh, and I haven't I haven't done a track by track for this record, but basically the protagonist of the story has three different mentors that are all that are kind of divided in these in the primary color scheme. So the 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 first of the record is red. The middle half is yellow. The last half is blue. We took that and associated the song characteristics with those colors. So red was a little bit more aggressive. Uh, it's very, um, you know, very punchy, very straightforward. You have songs like Going Nowhere, Argue, Frank Sinatra that are just kind of these more punk 
rock, uh, anthemic, aggressive, angsty songs. And then it moves into the middle half of the record, which is yellow, which is more of our groovy, happy, um, kind of fun songs like Yarze Homily, Bastard's Fire. And then it moves into the last part of the record, which is blue, that we identified with more of the introspective, solemn, spacey type songs like The Golden Rule and ours. So that record, it was it was a little bit easier because we, we, we kind of color-coded it in a way. <laughs> right. Okay, well, yeah, we can put these songs here based on feel. Degenerate Terror was not like that. Degenerate Terror <laughs> was fucking nightmare because James and I had come up with the overarching concept and the overarching themes uh, and the duality. And we're like, okay, well, now we've got to like really refine. We've got to refine certain lyrical motifs to fit within the polarity. We've got to make sure that these songs are are placed in the appropriate positions to, to be juxtaposed correctly so that the themes can transfer, uh, so that it's timeless. So it's, it's not just one listen and you're done. It's like you can come back to that record in 5, 10, 15 years and get something different from it. That's our goal. Yeah. And we were... I shit you not, we were so terrified because Will Will called us and was like, I don't like this track listing. <laughs> we were terrified. We're like, well, what do we do? We like this dude's been in the business. He sold a bunch of records. Like this was before I worked with him in like a personal capacity, really. Right. So he was like, No, I don't like that track listing. I think that you're gonna get better responses if you stack all of your singles at the first of the record which is how dance has always done it they yeah. always stack their shit at the beginning um and so he you know he made that point and he's like i think this record's gonna pop off better if you put your put your stuff Front at the beginning. well that ruins our whole concept like <laughs> the duality of the concept like the, the actual concepts written here it ruins it yeah. and he you know his kind of pitch again he he didn't know us at the time he just knew that he liked the music we made his as a label <laughs> owner like well you know i think that the concept doesn't really matter right now because you're just a brand new band but if you guys are dead set on it you can do it so we were like yeah man we're we're dead set so we put it out um and then to speak to listen was a little less of a nightmare than degenerataria but still Still a little tough because we had to – this one was all the guys in the band had become more comfortable uh, just in their own skins as musicians. And, and we'd, we'd done a bunch of tours and we kind of – we'd gotten our legs at that point. We'd had we, – we put out a product that people liked and people bought. And we – that was the first time we'd ever experienced that was during the Degeneratera cycle. It was like, okay, people actually like what we're doing. Maybe we're doing something right. We got to – keep on doing it now we have expectations now we have people that are going to say well their old shit was better um that you know it's always the, you run the risk of be when you're in a band that consistently this is new material and you're in the public eye people are always going to like your new shit and they're always going to like your old shit and there's people that are going to hate your new shit and hate your old shit it's it's all over all over the map so we we like okay we have expectations now we've got to think about some of these other things with the track listing that we may have not thought of before and that was when we enlisted Will's help to kind of guide us in the right direction and and pick pick some of the right songs for it and and base things a little more on flow and um, take a look at the concept and look at how that applies uh, less chronologically and more in succinct so 
the next record is the track listing. I think is going to be pretty tough to <laughs> nail down. Uh, but it is it's fun. It's a labor of love. It's just more of the egos of the band being like, well, I want this song here and this song needs to be over here. So yeah, it's it's definitely a contextual nightmare for sure. <laughs> Do you see you guys not not making a concept record at some point just for the sake of ease? <laughs> But <laughs> possibly, I think that man. I hope that they. I hope they never listen to this interview because we've actually, we've actually had talks with Coheed's camp okay. before, and we've all been fans of Coheed and Cambria forever. We love Coheed. I grew up a little Coheed. Bit. They're yeah. They're they're off. They're a great band. Um, we had a guy come out to one of our shows who he he like he runs the chat room okay. for Coheed. It's like a Coheed fan base. Message fan. board? Yeah, it's like a message board fan club. It's like the the big one that they have. Okay. And he's an admin like main publisher there and he, he came out and I, I got to talk with him for 20-30 minutes and just sweetest guy, really nice and loved our stuff. He, he actually showed Travis and Claudio um, both our recent records and they, they really enjoyed it. And so we have an opportunity to tour with them, I hope at some point in time. But that being said, I will be completely honest. I think that when Coheed took a step in that direction to not make a concept album, was that the they, one with the favorite house of Atlantic on it or whatever? I'm, yeah, I'm not was, a really great big Coheed fan. <laughs> it's yeah, like one of those I, bands everybody else listens to. And so by proxy, like I know a lot of their stuff, but not cause I actively sought it out. Yeah. My, my listenership of Coheed is kind of tapered off mainly with that recent record i think that they they kind of they're they built their core fan base off of this overarching incredible sci-fi concept with all these different themes and all of this like well thought out business which has always had some personal semblance that's what i like about claudio's writing is i write from a similar place where i'm applying things to a conceptual narrative but there is always some personal influence. There's always something going on. Like when you look at Good Apollo One, Claudio's writing about his like very, very disruptive relationship with his now wife, um, where it, you can tell in the lyrics he's just like in he's in pain. He's he's like really struggling, and he applies it to the concept beautifully. But there's a personal element there. He basically took out all of the technicality. And all of the concept uh, foundational um, epicness, I would say, I think is the best way to describe it, took that all out and made a record that's just the personal. And that to me, just it just didn't hit home with me. That record just didn't really resonate with me the same as the rest of their records. And I feel the same way about Migrant from The Deer Hunter. Okay. I loved all the acts from the deer hunter loved the act series the color spectrum one of the best records i've ever heard the just the, the again it's a concept record from the fact that like he recorded these different eps at different studios and he was able to capture these different essences and and all this different stuff and it, it just again it was something i hadn't heard before it really blew my mind and then migrant was he he it I intentionally publicized it as okay i'm not doing the concept guys i'm not I'm not <laughs> i'm not you know please buy my record i'm not doing the concept this time check it out and it's like okay i, I as an artist you have every right to to do that and there are definitely going to be people who love that stuff 
I was not one of them. I, <laughs> I, I, I like a lot of that that conceptual stuff. It's the same thing with, again, Portugal the Man, last band I'll name. They're, they've never done concept records necessarily, but a lot of their earlier stuff just had a, an explorative element in it uh, and, and like an existential element or like a um, very open concept type of narrative and they grew out of that and they you know it made them more money for sure they're definitely more they're definitely richer i mean I, <laughs> my shit's not in taco bell ads or getting played I, I remember hearing that new portugal song i was taking a shit at a pilot in kansas. <laughs> i was like i'm in a pilot in kansas and this song is on it's on the radio in the bathroom and you know that those guys are cleaning up and so it, there's something to be said for that but for me, I'm 26. I'm still kind of at that age where I just I still want to make art that I really enjoy. I still want to make art I believe in, um, and I haven't compromised that for the sake of ease yet. But uh, ask me again in like four years when I turn 30. <laughs> we'll do this again in four years. I'll let you know if that still holds true. <laughs> when you start, it's funny. More oftentimes than not now in my 30s, I've like my wife and I will be sitting on the couch and talking about how our credit scores are. And if we like things we can do once we pay off like different loans and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, what the fuck? Like what happened to being like, it's Wednesday, it's half off at this bar. Let's just go and <laughs> go yeah, have, have some fun. Oh. It's like, let's look at our credit scores and watch like the fucking flipper flop for like the millionth time. <laughs> I know that life, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get to that point now where I'm like, oh man, I've got to really start adulting the right way. <laughs> um, something I've, and you don't have to answer this, I guess. Something I've kind of wondered though, uh, in addition to just kind of the sonic landscapes you guys go through uh, and some of the the different readings that you have mentioned uh, on a couple of different podcasts. Like you had even talked about the, uh, and I should have remembered what the title of the books and the authors, but the two books oh. that basically represent uh, Degenitera and then basically where to speak to listen, kind of the duality of like those two books and, and how they applied to uh, each of the records. And I don't know why I always associate the question I'm going to ask with the scene from Between the Buried and Me when they were making uh fuck i can only think of the album cover the one with like all the big cityscape of like the neighborhoods and all that shit zapped yeah. colors um the great misdirect they're yeah. showing when they were recording this like trippy psychedelic part and none of them do drugs or anything so they just sat in a dark room with like black lights on and smoke machines and just did this crazy like delayed solo and all that kind of stuff mm. and so whenever i think of stuff like that it, that's like my first thought but then i'm always like on the other side it's like do I assume some sometimes people are into like like whether it necessarily be weed or like hallucinogenics to kind of help open your mind and just kind of think of some of these different concepts and, and kind of be able to think outside of yourself. Uh, and I know it sounds really shitty to have to be like, oh, you got to do that to sometimes be able to do that. But because I used to be growing up, one of those people who was like, oh, drugs are bad. And then it's like I had someone who was like, no, oh, you should try mushrooms. These are interesting. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, like I became very aware that I become very fascinated with time mm -hmm. and think about how I, like we were walking quick story. Like we were walking, like my two friends and I, they were walking their short dogs and I have like a hundred pound lab. And I was like, I'm not fucking doing that. That just seems like way too much work. And so mm -hmm. I just went for the walk, but they had to keep picking up their little dogs. And at one point there was an old couple that had walked past us or was walking past us. And then this lady, this jogger comes running in while we were stopped 
And I started laughing. And they were like, what's going on? What's so funny? And I go, I know I'm fucked up. Like, I know I'm tripping right now. But I was like, but I'm, a, I'm cognizant of it. But I just had this thought that, like, those people, those old people are in our past. We're in our present. And the jogger just was in our future, came in our present, and is now in our past. But is in their present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a different trip. Yeah, me. and so they were like, what the fuck? And I was like... I know it makes no sense, but like it makes perfect sense. And it's really weird to think of how different each of our lives are, but how they have different crossing patterns and, and how we all intersect sometimes. And, you know, for a split moment, like this person's a part of my life, my present right now, but now it's my past and, and I probably will never think of them again. But for so, that, it's just weird shit like that. Like that, I, you know, sometimes like when I listen to some of your music and some of the, the lyrics and stuff, because I don't have a hard copy, so I don't yeah. have like the lyrics to read. But, like, from what I can pick out sometimes, I'm just like, man, I could totally see, like, that thing, like, where you just, like, have, like, this train of thought, and then you're, like, thinking of something, and then you're like, oh, I'm going to write this down, or record it, or whatever, like, you know, just kind of as a, you know, stream of conscious type thing, and then I've kind of have wondered if that's something collectively any of you have kind of done to really, like, like, where you've done something, and like, wow, I, this thing is really cool, like, check this out, and is whatever, or if it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, no. <laughs> we're very much like between the barrier and me where we just like sit in a black light room and smoke machines and try to get an idea of what it would be like um well i yeah i love this question um sorry so, to be on the spot no no this is great uh couple of couple of answers i have to an- answer it in a particular way okay. um but before i do that so that when you were telling me the story of uh, the past present future and you're talking about the stream of consciousness and crossing paths. There's actually a word for that. Okay. And it's the title of LP4. So I, I found <laughs> that one. I'm not even shitting you. I found that one word that applies to that exact general framework or that general concept where everyone is living a cognizant life separate from your own. Mm-hmm. And this word really is the only descriptor in any Latin or English language that I could find that, that really nails that on the head. Um, it's a beautiful concept and it's, it's so open and so, so genuine, so pure. And so that leads me to my, to your, the rest of your question, which was, I think as uh, more or less have we used psychedelics, um, or like experienced something in that train of thought, brought it to the table, like thought about those concepts, thought, thought them out and, and bring them to the table. And, the answer is definitely yes. There are some of us in the band that have never experimented with anything like that. There are some of us that have that have used. I mean, there there were a period. I will I will just speak for myself. Okay. There was a period in my late teens, early twenties, where I was very into psychedelic use. I was I did a lot of LSD. I did. Um, I, I ate a lot of mushrooms. I did a lot of MDMA. I tried DMT a multitude of times. And I, again, I, I just, I, I wouldn't say if you've ever done psychedelics, if you've never done psychedelics and you're listening to this <laughs> and you really just have no frame of reference, it's okay. If no. you think it's bad, that's cool. Like just do a little bit of reading, do a little bit of research and do I, it in you know, the same not, space. Exactly. I'm not advocating for drug use. No. I don't think that that's that's that should be a prescription for anybody to go out and and do psychedelic drugs. But what what I will say is that I had a a really interesting childhood. It was very 
you know, I'm, I'm going through this with a, a therapist of mine right now. Is just some, some very traumatic moments as a child that really left me pretty confused as a young adult. I was basically homeless from the time I was 16, 17. I was, you know, working full time since I was like 15 years old. I, like, I was out on my own. I was really independent and I had a kind of a, a weird childhood. And that led me to a very confused place when I was in my late teens early 20s. And I was very anti-drug, anti-alcohol, anti-substance. I mean, I was basically straight edge when I was in my teens. And then I had um, I had a couple people in my life that introduced me to marijuana when I was 18. And that kind of like opened the door of my perception of like, oh, shit, like this is how I've defined my life for this long. And I've lived to these anxieties. I've lived in this body and in, in these in this headspace for a long time and now I'm outside of that headspace and I can kind of explore what it is to be out here and you know again I don't think I abused psychedelic drugs necessarily I think if you have used psychedelics you know that abusing psychedelics is kind of a tricky thing to do if you if just <laughs> it's LSD you probably don't want to do LSD again for a while it's that's generally the uh, the experience that I, that most people that I know have had is where You've you've done a psychedelic drug, uh, and if it's if it really melted your face, you, you put your probably, <laughs> probably good for a little bit. Thankfully, and, I've not had that experience, but I treat it with the respect of um, this is like a one thing every so often, and I just really enjoy whatever happens and kind of just yeah. remember that. But yeah, yeah. and it's, like, it's 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 the same for everybody. It's not a one size fits all. Like just like if you for most people, if you get so drunk that you are just hungover as shit. Uh, you you might you might have a beer or something the next day. <laughs> I I highly doubt unless you have an alcohol problem that you're gonna go out and get fucking trashed again the next night no. and the next night and be puking your ass off. Like it's just not how the human body's meant to work. So, no. uh, you know. But again, my main point that when I was in my early twenties, I experimented a lot with that, and that that honestly kind of shaped the foundational concepts for. Idola. I mean, that's what shaped the band. Like, that's how we came up with the name. That's how we came up with um, a lot of the groundworkings for the material that we wrote, the Great Glass Elephant. We were in a headspace where a lot of us were experimenting with, with those types of things and those types of concepts. And we definitely grown just immensely since then. Um, I would say that, that there, you know, that that's not really a super potent factor in what we no, do. No, 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 no. Just it's uh, it's something collectively I've I've kind of feel like I've gotten hints at and mm-hmm. in some of the books that you've talked about, specifically some of the the things and the themes within and the things discussed uh deal with drug use and, and I think one of the books you had talked about when I was doing some research on it was basically about like L S D. Um yeah. and the effects on, on the, the human brain and, and what it did to people and, and so on and so forth. Um so I mean it's kinda of one of those things where it's like I feel like you could only read so much of that kind of stuff before you're like, well, let's see what this is. Or you've already had those experiences. So when you're reading it, you're like, man, yeah, this really makes sense. And yeah, I I totally know what this this is coming from as opposed to just being like, I've never experienced it. This must be full of shit. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. No, totally. I I wholeheartedly agree. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's another book that I talk about a lot called Be Here Now where Richard Alpert, he, there's the whole thing first third of the book is all about how him and Timothy Leary were 
Harvard professors, and they were teaching these. They were they had federal funding. They had grant funding to experiment with LSD, DMT, and psilocybin, psilocin. They had all these grants to basically go and do psychedelic research and see its effects. And then you know you have Nixon coming in and fucking things up for everybody. And, uh, <laughs> They had they had a lot of breakthroughs in that, and the first third of that book really talks about that the usage of those chemicals and what they do to the human psychology to the to the human consciousness. And the middle third of the book really talks about how Richard Alpert made his progression from this Harvard professor to where he just lost all his identity and was reborn as Ram Das, this guru, and. He did that by he traveled to the Himalayas and he met with the Maharaji and he gave him a bunch of acid. He gave him like some it was an insane amount. It was like thirteen hundred milligrams or something of LSD. It was a lot, um, <laughs> enough to put a normal person down for sure. Like, you're, you're for like two days, and he gives he gives the Maharaji these. Uh, it's basically like a tincture or the, these capsules, and he eats. He just takes them in his hand and eats them straight up, just no hesitance, you know, nothing. And they wait for a bit to see, you know, if it kicks in, and nothing happens. The Maharaji is just completely at peace. He's completely normal. And Ram Das, Richard Alpert, is, like, completely dumbfounded. He's like, what? Like, if I gave this to a student, they, it's like horse tranquilizer. Like, they're not going to be able to function. Right. How are you just normal? And he's like, oh, I, I live here. Like, this is me all the time. Like, I operate at this frequency 24-7, dude. He basically is like, through meditation and yoga practices, I operate at this frequency of, of awareness and consciousness at all times. And so Ram Dass basically gives up drugs and studies with the Maharaji and then brings those teachings to the West back in, like, the 60s and 70s. Um, in, you know, kind of progressing into the 80s, and he's still alive today. He still does talks. He still does guided meditation. He still writes. Um, very, very cool guy. He, uh, you know, he, he still does that to this day. But it's, it's, that's kind of where I see Idola having come. You know, in our journey, is coming down the mountain and yeah. Once, to... once you've been, once you've opened that door enough times, you're like, okay, I know what's in here. Right. I, I can. You know, I can experiment with it. I can go through and I can check out what's there, but inevitably I'm going to have to come back. I'm going to have to close the door. I'm going to have to 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 be back in a sober body. Right. If I can figure out a way to just open the door an amount that is comfortable within my sober mind through other means, like I'm I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to do that in a healthy way. I'm going to try to do that in a productive way. And I think all of us have kind of come to that that place and we all we all do it through different ways not all of us meditate you know not all of us exercise you know i just i got into exercising and and i mean i've, I've been into meditation for a while but i didn't get into like physical stuff like fitness until looks like you go hiking quite a bit yeah i go hiking a bunch and and i i lift while i'm at home like i go to the gym as much as i can when i'm at home because again that's another cathartic thing that i didn't i didn't think of when i was younger <laughs> uh, that really helped me now as an adult to kind of cope with with things in my life and and just feel better, just feel healthier, and feel like I'm a better person to contribute those ideas with. So, um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, 
this is where I'll kind of bring up the, the Dance Gavin Dance stuff. Um, which is not something I necessarily wanted to stick on, just because, uh, as I have kind of have said in our correspondence, uh, as a 33-year-old person, Dance Gavin Dance wasn't really on my radar even 10 years ago. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, when Metalcore was, like, my thing. And yeah. Like, <laughs> I was waving really big. Really big. Really, uh, really strong. And, uh, but I have a, a health of healthy respect for any man that's you know doing something 10 years later i mean that doesn't happen by fucking fluke uh and having yep. been to warp tour this last year uh this most recent one and seeing like i through other podcasts that have kind of heard this was like the sour note of warp tour of the last few years as far as attendances go uh but i mean you can't really blame that necessarily on any of the bands i think this is one of the more stacked lineups that it's had the strongest lineups it's had in probably the last five or six years easily um Sorry. So one of the first things I kind of had wanted to ask was with starting your own band and then getting the opportunity to join Dance Gavin Dance, was there any hesitation on your part to not want to do that for fear of potentially being perceived as taking the easy way out or taking any time away from your main focus of Idola? Absolutely. Uh, I actually turned it down the first time that it was offered to me. Um, yeah, not a lot of people know that, but the first time it was offered to me, Josh Benton was the last like official guitar player, even though I'm coming up on the amount of time that Josh was in the band. I've been in the band by now. So, uh, but yeah, Josh was in the band for, you know, I think something like three and a half, almost four years. And he recorded Degeneratera, and we were doing vocals, and I was in the vocal booth in his parents, uh, the upstairs of his parents' house. And I'm in the vocal booth, and I'm laying down takes. Will's in, in on the couch producing, and Josh is in the in the chair. And Josh stops the take, turns around to Will, and is like, hey, man, I need a steady job. I'm not going to go on this tour that we have coming up. And Will is like, okay well then you're not in the band anymore <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's real awkward for you like, okay andrew can you come out real quick so i walk out there literally just like i just you know i just gotten picked up by will's label i uh i was a fan of dance gavin dance for a bit uh, before that and i was just laying down takes and i come out and will is like hey do you want to be in dance gavin dance and i was like fuck like this is the most conflicting position because this guy that's engineering my record is the job that i'm taking right now like if i take this opportunity i'm basically slapping josh in the face um and who knows what else like am i giving up this opportunity to do a record that i've wanted to make for for a long time and, and to really give my band an opportunity to have a bigger platform and so i turned him down i said you know, you just signed my band. I really want to see this through. I want to at least make this record, do some touring, get my legs under me. And then if you still need a guitarist in like a year from now, hit me up. And that's exactly what happened. Eric Garcia toured with them for four or five tours. And then he called me and said, hey, Dance is doing this 10-year tour with uh, Slaves and A Lot Like Birds and Strawberry Girls. Uh, do you want to come and do it? And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm down. Idola's done all this touring. Our record did did well enough to get us a, a decent platform. And so I agree. And at that time, I still had some fears that I, you know, my main fear was that my own bandmates were not going to really understand it. 
that they would yeah. be, you know, per, kind of personally hurt or offended. Um, but we found a good balance over the last two, two and a half years that the schedules really haven't conflicted. The only the only shows I've ever missed in the last two and a half years for dance were the first five shows of Warp Tour, and that was uh, Idola was still on tour with Hail the Sun at the very end of that, and it was fine. My friend Joey from Icarus the Owl flew out and covered for for those five shows, and then I played the other forty or whatever shows were left on that massive ass tour, and uh, it's it's been good. It's been you know it's it's. It's been work for sure. It's it's definitely work with both bands. I don't. I obviously don't get paid like a full D- time DGD member, um, but I I get the opportunity to play these great shows with music that I like, with people that I enjoy the company of, and I get to you know I, I get to write on some of the records too. I got uh, I got my mothership plaque up in in my new apartment that I got from writing on Deception and collaborating on Chucky and. Uh, this new record, I just got done writing a couple of songs for. They're they're tracking drums right now with Chris, so hopefully I'm going to fly out there in the next couple weeks and track on those those couple songs too, which is always a killer opportunity. So something I've kind of spoken to right after I came back from that warp tour in Connecticut. Now I've been to a couple of warp tours over the last handful of years to go see. Every time I die, they're like my favorite band, and I don't think I've missed a warp tour year that they've done. Love those guys just incredible um so, so a friend of mine's on was on the tour this year uh for cky uh you might have seen him frank i know some of your band members were yeah. wearing his uh cat yeah, we, clothing we hung out with frank yeah for sure frank okay boy so we that was one of the reasons we went was to go hang out with frank like i've known frank for a handful of years now and so it was just like kind of like a fun like you don't know i'm gonna be here and don't associate with me with being out on the east coast so yeah. uh it was a good surprise but he ended up uh, hooking it up with backstage passes or the the non whatever escort needed shit, so we could just yeah, go wherever. Yeah. You get to so, go on site and stuff, yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing for me in the in in an episode that I had done shortly after that happened, I went on to great lengths about how for most people the attitude was almost like, oh, I deserve to be back here, and, and just kind of being a fucking asshole about being side stage or backstage or whatever, wherever you were that the normal people who bought a ticket weren't allowed to go. Mm-hmm. Now, because I put on shows and, and I've watched so many like band documentaries and stuff, I'm more fascinated with the behind-the-scenes things, and I always have been. And I remember like walking around to the different stages and going side stage and all that kind of stuff, and I was more focused on what was happening behind the scenes. Like, that... You know, the I can only speak to the Connecticut date, but I know that there are other venues like this where it's like, it's an amphitheater, cut in half, and then there's like your two side stage or your two stages. Mm-hmm. It was incredible to see techs for the tour and techs for the band working together to tear down basically a club setup, really, if you really want to boil it down to what it is. Yep, Tear it down, do a a light sound check while the other band's only like five feet away playing, Mm. and then keeping everything on pace because having run my own shows, I know that running shows is so fucking hard and the stupidest things will make you run behind and that can cost you money or cut into someone else's set or whatever. Totally. So for me, it was a very interesting, eye-opening experience to see what a tour of that level 
and the professionalism that it requires to be on that kind of a tour, whether it be the lowest person to catering. Like I even got to go back and to, like hang out by catering, and that was nice. a trip yep. even unto itself. Yeah, and just seeing the, yeah. the side hustles of other people who are like cutting hair or yep. you know whatever yeah, or the cut and Mikey cuts yep. cut me up that tour so many times. <laughs> uh, or even like the Think Tei stuff, like where people are talking with whether it be people within the bands or the band's fans or whatever like there's just so much learning to be done uh Mm -hmm. on that tour and that was all i that's just for me going on one day yeah so i can only imagine for you having another band that's at this level where maybe it's not out of the realm of possibility to and the the dirty word in the industry buying onto a tour like that potentially uh Mm -hmm. or tours that are of that that nature what when you get the opportunity to be in dance gab and dance and do the whole work tour run or tours like that what is it what do you take out of those things what are the learning experiences you have taken that you are able to apply due to the opportunity you're in to then apply it back to your to idola yeah it's uh there's a lot i mean it's it's always an educational process i feel like i learned something new in each tour that i do with dance i learned something new i learn about uh, bigger venues, backlining, you know, <laughs> certain, certain ways that can that we can streamline a process that you know you really don't think about when you're at that that younger level or that that you know I don't want to say lower level, but you get what I mean. Yeah, it's you know you're not at you're not at a level where you are where on the totem pole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you get to see how things work on that next level because it's as with anything with music or entertainment in general, like you're a magician so to speak you're kind of <laughs> providing these people with this illusion and i remember feeling it when i was a kid when i would see circus survive or isis play and i would you just i didn't know anything about lights or gear or anything and so you just you look at the show and you're mystified and then you become a cynical asshole over time when you pursue the career and you're like oh that's they're using this gear and this is what i can <laughs> use from their set in my set that's gonna that's gonna come off this way you're, you're very analytical yes and I think any any good musician is is like that. They're they're gonna they're gonna go out and they're gonna observe and, and try to soak in as much as they can. And Warp Tour was a very very rich environment for all of that knowledge. It was it was just rich with these very talented people, um, you know. And I did, there were bands that I could not stand listening to on that tour, and bands that I loved watching. I mean, counterparts. Holy shit, man. Counterparts blew my mind every time I watched them. They were so good. That whole tour turned me on to the band completely. I, I, I love that band now because I got to witness them and their professionalism and their their live performance, their sound, just everything that they're doing on stage. It just resonated with me. So I get to see all these different people working and doing what they're passionate about, and that just inspires me. And so... That gives me inspiration to take back to Idola, business prowess, contacts, all this different stuff that that just inevitably helps the projects I'm trying to build. And not just Idola, but my own personal branding, like my own my own personal gift to people is my is my art and my music. And that that obviously hasn't been, you know, strictly it's been strictly Idola and dance so far. But I have a lot of projects in the work for 2018 that I'm really excited about that I am, am already working on that are branching out. And because I, I'm just, I was so inspired from that tour, I just want to keep, keep branching out. And I, I feel like a problem for me for a long time with, with Idola was because it was my baby, 
I any good idea I had, every single had good to go idea, to that. I would funnel it right into Idola. <laughs> now I'm reaching a point where Idola is self-sustaining enough, and me as as an artist, I want other avenues to express myself. That you know, maybe not every good idea gets to go to Idola anymore. You know, maybe some get to go to a solo project, or one gets to go to a heavier project. One gets to go to kind of a, a, a you know this other project I'm working on, like. It's 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 going to be a really good next couple of years. I I think I'm very very excited to kind of undertake some of these new projects and apply all that stuff that I'm continuously learning. Warped was you know no exception. It was really really cool. Totally shifting gears, kind of done on the on the band thing for a what? little bit. Through following you on Facebook, that sounds really creepy. <laughs> through <laughs> through being internet friends, uh, as it were, for a handful of years now, basically since that tour that I didn't yeah. get to book you guys on because you. I had, know because our van broke down. <laughs> I was so bummed. We had case raw guys stayed with us for the, a long weekend, basically, and we took them out, and it was a good time. Um, but with that being said, like having been friends on on the internet and being able to kind of get a peek into your life. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like, at least that I've noticed maybe in the last year or so, and this may be something you've dealt with your whole life, but it's only something I've kind of become slightly aware of. Did I did I read or did I kind of infer correctly that you have been dealing with Lyme disease uh, for at least a little bit or maybe your whole life? That is correct. It's actually been uh, just the past year or so, okay. just a little over a year. And it's... <sighs> Yeah, it's been it's been a little difficult. It's uh, I basically we did a show where I was walking through some. It was in it was in Las Vegas. It's at a place called Eagle Area Hall. Okay. And I was walking through some like there's brush near that area. Yeah. And I got bit by something on my shin. And I was like, okay, uh, you know, I get bit by bugs all the time. Whatever brushed it off and then the next two days i was deathly sick like i thought i was going to die i was just profusely vomiting had a crazy fever and i didn't i didn't know anything about ticks i didn't know anything about lyme disease other than john mess had it from dance gavin dance for a period of time and so i just paid no mind to it and i healed from this like flu-like sickness and i was good for maybe a couple weeks and then I started to get um, these crazy weird pains in my abdomen, um, my epigastric region. I started getting um, pain in my back. I started getting these weird uh, tremors, these weird, uh, they're like... Spasms? Yeah, they're basically muscle spasms, yeah. And they would be, be all over my body, unexplainable. And psychological symptoms that that really weren't making sense to me, like... You you hear a lot of people that have Lyme disease. They talk about like this mental fog or this like bipolar esque mimicking type uh, symptom, and it's it. I I hadn't felt these like levels of depression or anxiety since I was a kid, since I was maybe sixteen, seventeen. I I hadn't really thought of suicide uh, since I was that young, and so something was really wrong. I just felt like something was was very wrong, and. I continued to tour through, I mean, I've obviously continued to tour the most I've ever toured in the past year, honestly. I've mm-hmm. been gone for for very extended periods of time. And I went to a bunch of doctors. I went to probably six different doctors. And 
they all diagnosed me with different shit. They all said, one guy said it was heartburn. The other guy said it was uh, like a completely gastro gastrological issue. And then I went to a GI specialist and they did an endoscopy where they, they stick the camera all the way down yeah. your throat. And, um, and they diagnosed me with, it's called a hiatal hernia. It basically means that there's a piece of your stomach that comes up through your diaphragm um, by your esophagus that causes, again, more heartburn. They, they diagnosed me with esophageal ulcers and uh, just unexplainable symptoms. And they gave me all these different pills to take, and none of them helped. I remember being on the mothership tour and trying these new pills, and none of them helped. And it, it, was, it was tough. I would say this year's probably been, like the last 12 months have been some of the hardest and yet some of the most rewarding of my whole life because I've gotten to do some things I never dreamed I could even do, which is tour Europe and and um, be on Warp Tour. I mean, those are two things that I I'd always dreamed of doing, and I, I got the opportunity to do those. Um, but I was in pain the whole time. I'm in chronic pain every single day of my life. I There's not one waking moment where I'm not in some sort of physical chronic pain. And I even had the last the last doctor I went to before I stopped going to the doctors. Uh, it was it was two two things. They basically tested me for Lyme because I'd done all this research. All of my symptoms matched up. I had blood work done where I had it's a it's a chemical called bilirubin. Okay. Um, and it's it basically it's like how your gallbladder functions. It's it's a release of of bilirubin, and if you have a if you have a tumor, uh, like on your pancreas, or or it's a gallbladder duct that's blocked, or gallstones, uh, your skin turns yellow, and and you have like this excess of bilirubin in like it, I think it's either indirect or direct. It, yeah, we won't get into crazy medical, <laughs> terms, but basically, mine was high for no no reason, conceivable reason, and yeah. so they have this thing called Gilbert's syndrome, which okay. is like a uh, it doesn't it's not supposed to affect you in any way. It's just supposed to be chronically high bilirubin. And I was like, okay, no one else in my family has that. It's hereditary. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, it's got to be something. So I did more research, and it led me to matching my blood test with a lot of Lyme research that was done, a lot of a lot of Lyme diagnosis. And so I went to him, and I said, hey, this bite happened to me like almost a year ago, you know, like nine months ago. I think it could be Lyme. Is there something we can do to, to test that? And the doctor said, well – we can test you for it, but the only test that we have that's covered by your insurance uh, is, and this is right before I lost my insurance. Again, I just turned 26. I was on my parents' insurance. I was able to go in and get those tests done under insurance, and they said the only test they can do is a Western blot, which will show up as a false negative something like 80 or 90% of the time if it's not diagnosed within the first six weeks of the bite. So it came back as a negative. And the doctor said, well, the only thing we can do from here, he's like, your symptoms are matching up with what what Lyme would be. Um, but here's your recourse for treatment. He said, if we treat you, you're going to be on antibiotics, like IV antibiotics for like a year to two years. And that will mean that you would have to, if you don't quit touring altogether for those two years, you would have to take a substantial break from any sort of, of touring because touring just takes a toll on your body and your mind. It's just any musician will tell you that I believe. And 
was like, well, I can't do that. That's my job. Like this has been <laughs> the way that I make money for the past, you know, three years. Like I can't really just up and and especially not having insurance now. I can't I can't just give that up. And he was like, well, if you want to, you know, if you want to confirm uh, without a shadow of a doubt, we can do a full panel screening for it's something like a thousand dollars that you have to pay. That's not covered by insurance. It's completely out of pocket. You you have to pay for a full co-infection screening, and and I just don't I haven't had the money to go and do that. But he basically told me like yes, it is it's likely that you have Lyme. If it's not Lyme, then it this would involve further investigation. We would have to do a colonoscopy to check out your colon. We would need to put you on like a strict diet regimen that narrows it down. Um, he's like, but. He kind of gave me some good news and some bad news. He said this that it, other than just having chronic pain, that it doesn't lead to any type of fatality until you're later in life, and then it can lead to Lyme carditis, where it attacks your heart and you have a heart attack and you die, um, or it can go into your brain even more so and really impact your behavior. And a lot of Lyme sufferers from chronic Lyme will commit suicide. And I was like, well, yeah, I, I definitely have those foreign thoughts it doesn't feel like me it feels like a different different being really at certain points in time and so we discuss different plans to manage it so i take magnesium for the the tremors and the 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 palpitations i exercise to kind of mediate the chronic pain like when i'm exercising and i'm I'm healthy and i'm fit there's less pain that's experienced the the muscles kind of compensate for some of this internal pain right and uh when I'm really good at home, I, I have a pretty decent diet and my stomach pain isn't nearly as, as bad as when I'm on tour and eating garbage. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a work in progress, man. It's, um, it kind of sucks when you get all these doctors that misdiagnose you with all this different stuff and it kind of falls in that Lyme kind of falls in that realm of like, same thing with like, could be this, uh, could be this. We don't know. It's going to, it's like touring. Hurry up and wait. Yep. And it's like, it falls in the category of a lot of autoimmune disorders, which is basically a what the fuck is wrong with you type of thing where you, you've got your celiac and your Crohn's and, um, you know, you, you've got like, uh, fibromyalgia and all these different diseases that are autoimmune that are treated differently. Uh, just like, like you would use steroids for one of the autoimmune diseases to help it but that actually makes another autoimmune disease worse. So it's, it's hard to pinpoint. And when you're on tour a a lot and, and you're in kind of that position, it's, it's kind of a catch 22. So I'm really hoping for the best. I'm hoping to manage it for, for the time being. And as I am able to, to get more financial, um, foundation in place, I can kind of have that set aside to go through more medical procedures and kind of get it pinpointed and get it treated. Um, it makes touring difficult, but it's, I love, I love playing music. It's, it's really cathartic for me. Um, and I, I just don't think about the pain when I'm playing and that, that really helps kind of keep me sane. So. Well, that was all I really had for you as far as any questions or anything. So Sweet. this is the, the fun part where we get to plug socials and maybe any tours or anything. I know you do vocal lessons and stuff like that, so I mean, yeah. don't plug that. 
That would be awesome, man. Um, so as far as Idola goes, we have four shows coming up, all in California. They're two with C. Anvar, um, and then which one is in Fresno, one's in Camarillo, and then we have Night of the Blue Swan, which is C. Anvar, Secret Band, Us, Icarus the Owl, and Wolf and Bear. That's at Chain Reaction and uh, Holy Diver in Sacramento. Those are uh, Holy Diver's a new venue in Sac. Our manager. Uh, just helped open it. it was really, really cool. Uh, so we're doing those shows. That's like December. It's like November 30th through December 3rd. Okay. December 2nd, December 3rd. And then the Mothership Tour starts right after that for Dance Kevin Ants, where we're doing uh, 10 shows, 12 days, playing Mothership in its entirety. And I'm super excited about those. And as far as socials go, you can check out Idola at idolamusic.bandcamp.com. And that's where we got most. That's where we got all our records for streaming. Um, Facebook.com slash Idola UT, <laughs> and yeah, Instagram's just Idola, Twitter's just Idola, um, and then uh, for lessons, yeah, I do offer vocal coaching. I've I've had years of experience, um, not only touring and performing as a as a vocalist, but in teaching and in actual lessons myself i've i've worked with coaches like eric arsenault Per bristow um i have a lot of formal training from earlier years that i apply to my lessons i like to cater them to the individual so pretty affordable it's just andrew michael lessons at gmail.com and then lastly i always like to play episodes out to a song so pick a song and maybe give me a story as to why why you like it or you picked it it could be one of your own could be something you're listening to well, it could be something I'm listening to, not an Idola song. Well, so the the funny thing was, and different people have taken this completely different ways, but when I ended up talking with uh, Mark from Atreyu, he was like, man, oh. I've been listening to this Sturgill Simpson song, Turtles All the Way Down. And he was like, so go ahead and do that. When I ended up talking to Jason Wisdom of uh, Death Therapy, formerly of Becoming the Archetype, he was like, well... I need to promote my new record. I'm not like in a tree <laughs> and, yeah. and kind of went that route with it. So uh, I typically leave it up to whoever. I mean, I just think it's fun, you know, whether it be like a song of your own, then like obviously you can give like a, a cool backstory on it. If it was something you're listening to, then maybe like, oh, you know, like for me lately, like typically before I put on, like do these podcasts, I'm typically listening to Chris Stapleton. And it's not necessarily something that a lot of people would probably assume I listen to, but it's just something that I like absolutely love and can't get enough of. So it's usually like when people are like, Oh, what are you listening to? That's, you know, whatever. It's like Chris Stapleton. It's good drinking music. It's good. Like sitting by yourself music. It's good. Like good chilling music, it's just yeah. good chill music all the way around. And it's good. Like storytelling. So, uh, let's do the song bouquet by counterparts. Okay. Off their newest record. You're not you anymore. I have had that record on fucking repeat since it's been out. It's just so good. And that song, the lyrical content, the musicianship, just everything. It's just, again, that band left me really inspired from Warped Tour. It's I get, it's like not everybody's cup of tea. I don't think a lot of people would expect me to listen to hardcore music. <laughs> but I love it, man. I, I love that band. And that song in particular is like really... Uh, helped me through some shit recently which is awesome but uh yeah so thank you for the time and uh i know you're you're busy 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 man between <laughs> dgd and your solo stuff or your own stuff uh by the way is there any opportunity that you're going to be writing a book uh yeah i've actually thought about that um i've i've actually compiled some 
some good stuff I think I'm going to work on here relatively soon. Uh, I've kind of got to reach that. We got to reach that age where people will actually buy it and not be like, "Oh, this twenty-six-year-old doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about." Like, well, I've got the experience, but you know, it, it's in it's in due time. I've still got a lot to learn, and I'm excited to learn it for sure. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to end this podcast on. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it, man. So that was my chat with Andrew Michael Wells of Idola and Dance Gavin Dance. Going to keep this outro pretty quick because of how long that episode actually ran. So, if you would like to follow Andrew and or Idola on the various social networks that there are, you can follow on Instagram at Andrew Michael Wells. That's all one word, A-N-D-R-E-W-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-E-L-L-S. Or if you'd like to follow the band, it's at Idola, E-I-D-O-L-A. Facebook is at Idola U-T, that's E-I-D-O-L-A-U-T. Or you can tweet the band at Idola, simply put. If you would like to follow me on any of the social networks, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at John's Untitled Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at John's Untitled Pod, or you can email me at johnsuntitledpod at gmail.com. Any of those things are a great way to keep in touch with me. As I said uh, last week, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter, Facebook, and and post different things. Uh, Most recently, uh, this weekend, there was an article that Miss Gloria Cavallera posted about Max being a Detroit Lions fan and how at their recent stop on the Nail Bomb Tour in Detroit, the they got to go to Ford Field for a private uh, showing of Ford Field, going to the locker rooms, checking everything out. Uh, it's really awesome when you get to find that some of these legendary people in the music world are into sports and especially the teams that you know are home hometown teams for you. Uh, so given the struggles that the Lions have had over the last, I don't know, always, um, it's, it's tough sometimes being a, a Lions fan, even if it's more of a casual thing or out of necessity of just the fact that, you know, it's easy to keep touch with the Lions due to the fact that they're always on living here in Michigan. So uh, Lions fan or not, it's pretty cool to see that Max Cavalier supports the Lions and supports American football as a whole. Uh, be that as it may, um, you can follow me, like I said, on a, the various different social networks, trying to be more active in posting different content, as I said. Also want to give a quick uh, plug for the upcoming Idola shows. November 30th, they are at Strummer's in Fresno, California. December 1st, they are at the Rock City Studios in Camarillo, California. December 2nd, at the Chain Reaction in Anaheim, California. And December 3rd, at Holy Diver in Sacramento, California. So if you are on the West Coast, uh, go check these guys out. Uh, Also of note, the December 2nd and the December 3rd show at Chain Reaction and Holy Diver are part of the Night of the Blue Swan 3 uh, package, uh, which is all bands that are on that label, Blue Swan Records. So we're going to play this episode out as we always do with a song. You heard me ask Andrew what song he wanted me to play the episode out to, and that would be Counterparts, Bouquet. Obviously, touring with Counterparts on Warped Tour all summer had a little bit of a lasting impact on uh, Andrew. So without further ado, this is Counterparts with Bouquet. Talk to you next week. Disconnecting face, and it never so release my strength to you. Won't that way lay by this mess already?